You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Nowhere to Run. Thank you for showing up and tuning in. Uh, my name is Chris. If you've got any questions for me, don't hesitate to write. You can reach me at my website, nowheretorunradio.com. Is probably the best place to go for all the stuff that's going on there. Lots of stuff to talk about today, so we'll just jump right into it. Uh, what about, first of all, the update from the last show about the trumpets and everything? Um, I wanted to offer one other cool thing that I found in relationship to that quick refresher as i was talking about rosh hashanah and how uh the rapture i don't think has anything to do with rosh hashanah i think the fall feast will be fulfilled in the end times but towards the end of the 70th week of daniel uh instead of the beginning and um i was saying that the trumpets being referred to in the famous rapture verses such as first corinthians 15:52 and uh uh first thessalonians 4, 16 or somewhere around there uh, is is talking about the the silver trumpets uh, associated with numbers 10, which call the uh, assembly to the tabernacle and also sound the alarm. And those two things, I think, are relevant to the beginning of the day of the Lord, which is referencing Joel 2, 1, when he talks about how you blow a trumpet and sound the alarm. And those two things... Uh, are associated with the day of the Lord, according to Joel two one and first uh, or uh, Zephaniah one, which also uh, associates the blowing of the trumpet and sounding of the alarm to the um, to the beginning of the day of the Lord, which, as I showed in that uh, podcast, is uh, definitely the New Testament belief that the day of the Lord and the rapture are back to back events. The rapture initiates the day of the Lord, if you will. So. One cool little tidbit about that is that word shout. Uh, first, let me find that real quick. First Thessalonians 4.16 says, for, this is the famous rapture verse. Everybody is cool with this being a rapture verse. And it's like the number one rapture verse. It says this, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So, there is a shout and a trumpet. That word shout, kelyuma, uh, Greek, Greek Strong's is G2753. The usage of that in the New Testament is nil. That is the only other, the only other place that it is used. Kind of an interesting little thing. But let's go back to Joel chapter 1, where, uh, let's go to Joel chapter 2, actually, where, blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound the alarm. That word alarm is H7321, Ru'ah, I think is how it is alliterated. And its usage, usage is very, very interesting, because it is often translated as the word shout. For instance, um... See, Joshua, when it came to pass in the seventh time, when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said unto the people, shout. That word is alarm, but it's also used in this direct context. Uh, shout, this should be a great shout. Numbers 10, that word alarm uh, is actually 
you know the same thing it's it's the it's the same word shout and alarm so i hope you see the significance of that that the rapture verse is saying the same thing that the day of the lord verses are saying blow ye trumpet and sound the alarm the shout the alarm is what's what's being referred to there it's just one more one more nail in the coffin there that i think uh, if you listen to that show that rosh hashanah and the rapture are not together in fact Oh, look at this. This is just amazing stuff. The symbolism of the trumpets in the book of Revelation, I don't think are discounted here. Um, in fact, I think that there is very good reason why they are symbolized as trumpets. And I went through in the last podcast about why uh, I, I certainly don't think the trumpets in Revelation are uh, the, are referring, or the, the rapture verses are referring to that trumpet, and there's lots of different reasons for that that I go over. But that doesn't mean that they don't have significance. And here, I believe, is the significance. That Rosh Hashanah is, is celebrating, essentially, the completion of the purification process of Israel. I believe that it will, um, it will uh, begin 10 days before the end of the 70th week of Daniel. And the last day of the 70th week of Daniel will therefore be the Day of Atonement, the Days of Awe, the Repentance, of Israel, which we're actually in in right now, uh, as uh, as this is the 9-29-2011, we are, I think, in the first or second day of uh, the Days of Awe, then at the, 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 the end of the 70th week would therefore be the Day of Atonement, and therefore 75 days after that would be the Feast of Lights, the rededication of the Temple, which and the beginning of the Millennial Reign. 75 days after the the... 70th week of Daniel, of course, includes that 75-day period mentioned by Daniel, divided essentially into a 30-day period and a 45-day period, which he talks about in the book of Daniel. So, anyway, my point in this is this, and I was tipped off to this by Psalm chapter 12 in my little reading program there, and it says something about how the word of the Lord is purified seven times something or whatever. Says the word of the Lord is purified seven times, and it's and it's and I and a lot of people use that verse to say that the King James Bible is the anyway that, that that if you look up that verse that's what people use it for. I don't think that's what it's talking about. I think what it's talking about is that if you and I just googled the phrase seven times. Just what does the Bible have to say about seven times? That phrase is used unbelievably consistently in terms of purification. That's what the psalm was trying to, was allegorically referring to in the word of God. Obviously it was referring to something, some other previous purification that must have been well known. And I saw why it was well known (laughs) because it's always seven times. You purify something in ritual purification, usually with sprinkling the blood of something on, on something purifying, do that seven times. Then they are, are purified through that process of the seven times there. And I think that the Rosh Hashanah trumpets um, are, in some way, in some way connected to those seven trumpets, and that that it will be completed. Um, the whole thing will be completed right then, and it's a purification process for Israel during that seven, uh, those seven trumpets, because the the day of the Lord essentially starts with the first trumpet, and the seventieth week of Daniel ends at the last trumpet. Uh, the bowls are poured out during that 75-day period. Um, I think that they are all poured out in the 30-day period, uh, culminating in Armageddon, which is the last day of the 30-day period. I know this sounds uh, intense, but if you want to check this stuff out. Um, but anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that the purification process, the 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 
for for Israel is during those seven trumpets. Every all, you know, Israel will be purified through that. 144,000 of them, which I think are kind of like a priest class, are actually preserved through the trumpets. But we see in Zechariah that uh, I think it's two thirds of Israel uh, will be, in fact, destroyed through that process, but one third will not, and they will. Uh, be purified through that process and will repent during the days of awe, culminating in the days of Day of Atonement, and they will populate the millennial period. So I think that there is uh, significant uh, uh, symbolism with the trumpets uh, in Rosh Hashanah and the purification of Israel, but I do not believe for lots and lots of reasons that Rosh Hashanah and the rapture are uh, are tied together because of those trumps, because at least what's being spoken of in 1 Corinthians 15.52 and 1 Thessalonians 4 and in Matthew 24 and all the parallel passages are referring to the day of the Lord and Joel in Zephaniah, Numbers 10, the silver trumpets, not the Rosh Hashanah trumpets. I actually did not mean to get into that, but I uh, guess I did anyway, so... Okay, other show note type things. Well, hey, Elenin is come and gone, um, in a sense. If you have been paying attention to the Elenin thing and you've been on the NASA website and messed with that little uh, graph thing that they got there, Java, you know, thing where you can track Elenin, then you know what I mean, that it is definitely not true. I mean, if this thing, if the hypothesis was correct, that this thing was causing earthquakes, which is the whole point, then it would have happened here in the 26th or 27th at the very least. Definitely maybe the 28th, but now we're just way past it where there's no alignment thing. You know, some of the diehards are saying, we still got till October 1st, but if it happened on October 1st, it still would be so far from this alignment thing. Anyway, the point is, if you've looked at that graph, all these other alignments were like way far away. And this one was like right up close. I mean, it should have been this awful extinction level thing if the basic theory was right. But the basic theory was based off like one of the oldest earthquake nonsense prediction models ever. You, you have an earthquake and then you look at what the stars did during that day and you come up with some hypothesis about why that earthquake happened based on the position of Jupiter or something like that. It's like one of the oldest nonsense earthquake predictions and this is no different and this proves that it was wrong i mean this but nevertheless uh it has not really it's not going to change you know people's views on it they'll just sort of like the herald camping thing it just sort of becomes next year or something else changes um in fact but i was encouraged one of the guys who is you know really uh promotes this a lot he actually says, okay, it wasn't a brown dwarf star. You know, this was a hypothesis, and this disproved the hypothesis. Now, that's a that's the good part. He says, okay, I was wrong. I was like, okay, the guy admits he's wrong. How about that? That's a first. But he only admits he's kind of wrong. He says, basically, it's another big, super big object that's probably, I think he said, like 50 or 60 days behind it. So we're still, he's still got a big, big object and everything there, and it's just a little bit off, basically. But, I mean, admitting that it's not a brown star is a step in the right direction. I mean, you think we would have noticed if a brown dwarf star passed between the Earth and the Sun, but, hey, didn't stop people from believing it before. So, um, But anyway, I, I don't mean to gloat about it, but I do want to officially sound the alarm that Elenin 
is not going to destroy us. So that's good. It's good news. You know, these kind of things, it's really, it's really kind of like the thing where we as human beings, everybody, me, you, everybody, we just have a real hard time admitting we're wrong and we don't like it. And we do all kinds of funny stuff to avoid saying those words. And it is especially difficult with Bible preaching and teaching. Although, I'll say, I don't want to, like, slam pastors or anything, because I think that pastors actually are probably one of the best at doing this. It's just that that I maybe there's just more opportunities for pastors to admit they were wrong because they're studying something that is it's the word of God. God. I mean, it's like you can't know it completely because it's like too big for anybody to like grasp. And there's a lot of difficult things in there. And I think that the problem is, is that we men and women, everybody wants to want to, especially though men, I think we want to try to understand everything, you know, we want to have an answer for everything. And so we have a tendency to make, you know, if we don't we'll, we'll come up with a, with a, what we think about a particular thing and it kind of, even if we don't try to make it dogmatic, it can easily become dogmatic. Uh, but like I said, I think that pastors are good at it, especially those that are good pastors are good at being wrong. However, uh, prophecy is a particularly difficult area with this because, well, it's difficult and it's, mm, there's a lot of sort of sacred cows. I think I, I, uh, I think I coined a phrase the other day that I think in a lot of ways we all have kind of a Hal Lindsey hangover where we kind of have a lot of residual Hal Lindsey stuff going on. I I, I do. I know. I, I remember listening to Hal Lindsey tapes and I would listen to him over and over again. I mean, I could like a robot repeat the the things, you know, the... Locusts are helicopters, and the faces of men are the pilots in the helicopters, and the hair is the helicopter blades, and in the, you know, I mean, I could do the Hal Lindsey two-step, you know, but they, I, I think that, I don't know, I don't want to go too far on that, but what I basically want to say is that it's real hard for people that have taught uh, prophecy or wrong prophecy views, including myself, especially myself, to to go back on it and to change their view. And I think the public teaching of it has some kind of extra hard, difficult thing. If you have written a book on a particular subject, you are just, you have a mountain to climb, especially if like your income is based on that book, then, then I am sorry for you because there's almost no chance of you changing your view, even if it's right in front of your face and you know, it's true there's you will find some way to make it not true because of that um interestingly i have an email from a guy that you would all know you would all know you know he's one of my favorite uh preachers teachers uh of all time and i got him to watch my matthew 24 video about the rapture and he totally watched it and i was like wow that's that's awesome and he said the following. He Well, I'm not quoting him verbatim or anything, but this is basically what he said. It's like, okay, I get it. This is, I think he said, a a valid alternative to pre-tribulationalism. 
why should I teach this now? And he said the following. He was like, okay, I get it that people say teaching teaching pre-tribulationalism will make people apathetic or something. And he's like, and I don't really follow that that much because, you know, they, people I teach aren't apathetic. And he was like, and then also people say that it, you know, they're not going to be prepared for tribulation and stuff like that. He's like, I don't really see those as really necessarily that crucial of issues. And of course the obvious answer to that is if it's right, you know, it's not like they're mutually, compatible issues i mean you don't have to go much further than uh well why don't you just teach the one that's correct but i didn't say either one of those i said look i don't i agree with you i don't think that those are that big issues i think that the issue is is that you end up telling your people that the antichrist is you know cannot show up unless you're gone if you see somebody that looks smells tastes like the antichrist it's definitely not the antichrist because the antichrist prophetically cannot show up unless you're raptured first so that causes obviously a big deal of problems not to mention that that is in no way the view of the early church i mean the early church if the one thing that they got really well is that the rapture occurs after the antichrist and the persecution of the antichrist begins but before the judgment of god on the wicked they saw those as two two separate things the word that they were referred to as is imminent intertribulationalists and that is the same thing that pre-tribulationalists will say hey look there was pre-tribulationalism in the early church but the best that they can do is cite imminent intertribulationalism which is the view that the antichrist must show up first I mean, the, what I'm trying to say is the best a pre-trib person can do, quoting the early church, is to prove that the early church was pre-wrath. And that is, of course, um, an issue. But they do, you do that all the time. But nevertheless, what am I going to go to next? How about some other prophecy issues? I, don't, I didn't mean to like, go totally prophecy on this show. It's like the prophecy extravaganza. And I've got, well, 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 let's take a prophecy breather here for a second and talk about verse-by-verse Bible teaching. Um, the I'm just doing something tonight with uh, Mike. We're going to record the beginning of Hebrews chapter 6, which is a very important chapter as it is like the, the very difficult verse there, Hebrews 6, verse 6. Uh, I think it's verse 6. And so I really want you all to, if you get a chance to check that uh, episode out, it'll probably be posted later on this week, early uh, early this week. The Because I think that you'll really find it interesting, the things that uh, I have found out about this particular passage. And thanks to my wife, mostly, uh, who really, really helped open the door. And it just, I think, opened up the door to so much scripture that talks about this particular difficult passage in the book of Hebrews. So stay tuned for the verse by verse thing. I really am enjoying doing that, but it was interesting. I was reading commentaries on this and everybody was saying a different thing. I mean, even the guys that I really respect were all like saying something different. And I just was like, all right, I get, I give up. I mean, I thought I knew what I was going, what was going on here. Now I'm just completely lost. So I sat down and I was like, I'm just going to read this whole thing again and I'm going to pray 
And Lord, if you if there's anything I'm missing here, would you show it to me? And sure enough, a verse jumps out, like jumps out of the page and like shakes me. And it's like, look, I've been here the whole time. And it sure enough is the answer to the whole thing. And I think it uh, makes the whole thing make sense. Okay, I'm going to transition now into introducing this clip, which is a verse-by-verse -verse study on Mystery Babylon, Revelation 17 through 18. Only get through verse 3 in this 30-minute clip, although a majority of it is the intro to it. And I structured it in to hopefully explain the entire view for those that are only going to spend the 30 minutes there in the intro, or at least give people enough scriptural support to be sympathetic to the view in just the intro in the first three verses. But uh, really, I, I do hope that you uh, go through the whole thing with me at verse by verse Bible teaching dot com because it's just going to this. It's something that you almost need to go through verse by verse to see how in, intensely attested to this is in scripture. Things like the every word in the in the items that the merchants bring to Mystery Babylon. You know. A lot of commentators just say, oh, and these things uh, are representative of, of, you know, wealth. But there's like 15 things there that have like extremely important reference back in the Old Testament or something. So um, anyway, this that kind of stuff. Also, it, it's a great platform to deal with a lot of the criticisms and things like that. So when we get to the verses that people, you know, usually criticize of you for or something like that, it's going to be an opportunity to really thoroughly deal with all that stuff. And it, I'm doing it because I honestly could not, not, not do it. Uh, there's three knots, three, I don't know if that cancels each other out, but basically I, there was times I couldn't even sleep because I would think about different ways in which this was true and other scriptures would, you know, I would think of, and it was just, it was just something I have to do or else I just would, I don't know. But I, I think I just really get grieved sometimes at, um, a lot of the weird views people have about this because it does lead to all kinds of problems and it's not uh it's just so easy to believe a crazy view out there because of youtube and you know people put some cool music in the background and everybody believes every new thing that comes out about this issue and it gives it a great opportunity to hopefully talk a lot of biblical sense into it and i think if people can start to understand not simply the interpretation of what's going on, but if they go through this, I think it'll teach people a hermeneutic that, that look, you, the Bible is going to tell you what to think. Um, you have to conform to what it says and you've got to, and it is saying something and it wants you to go figure it out, but it doesn't want you to make something up, you know? And I think that it's going through this verse by verse is a great way to demonstrate specifically that point, I, I think, um, I know that I have been just blown away at the majesty and the thoroughness of scripture. And I have, I have personally, um, and I already had a high respect for the Bible, but now I have a much higher respect from the Bible because of this issue. So I hope to pass that on to other people as well. Um, so let's see here. The best way to, to do this is to probably go to verse-by-verse -verse Bible teaching if you want to watch the movie. I'm going to play the audio here. It's not crucial to watch the, the movie, but it is. It is If you prefer that, then you would like that. But um, the text is also at verse-by-verse -verse Bible teaching. I don't usually publish the notes and stuff, but I thought it would be better if I did for this issue for other reasons. And 
Um, the best way to do it, if you go to Verse by Verse Bible Teaching and you sign up on the right side, there's a little thing that you can put your email address and you will be notified when new posts come up at Verse by Verse Bible Teaching. So that is probably the way to do that if you wanted to stay in touch with the with the other stuff. Plus, you can go to Facebook and all that stuff. I guess I'll probably be posting these on Facebook as well. They're all on the same Vimeo account. I'm going to try to keep this whole this whole study on the same Vimeo account um, so it'll all just be in one place. And without any further ado, I don't even know what ado is. Much ado, much ado about nothing. Um, but without any further of that, here is the clip. This will be a multi-week study on Revelation chapter 17 through 18 which is widely considered to be some of the most difficult chapters in the book of Revelation. I hope that you will make an effort to go through the entire study, which is available in multiple formats, such as video, mp3, or text, all available at the website versebyversebibleteaching.com. So why do such an in-depth study on this particular issue? In addition to the study of The Woman That Rides the Beast, or Mystery Babylon, we will also be studying in depth the beast itself, which is widely considered to be the Antichrist. This section of scripture offers so many opportunities to study other events in prophecy, such as Daniel and the timing of the events in the book of Revelation, and therefore it's a great way to study a lot of different concepts in prophecy at the same time. There's also a lot of confusion about the identity of Mystery Babylon, and some of those interpretations not only lead to bad doctrine, but it puts the church in danger, I believe, of being deceived in the end times. It's also important to study prophecy in general, because a major portion of the Bible consists of prophecy. Thus, if we neglect it, we are neglecting a major portion of the Bible. The scriptures cannot be rightly understood or unfolded if the prophetic sections are neglected. Even among dedicated Bible scholars and teachers, there is a huge variety of views about the identity of Mystery Babylon. Yet the angel in Revelation 17:18 actually tells John what it is that he's just seen. And the angel tells John that it is a city. It says, And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. It is referred to as a city eight times in Revelation. And all the things that happen to it seem to be talking about a literal city. For instance, the city is burned down and smoke can be seen from the nearby sea. All this and many other factors cause most Bible scholars to believe that it is talking about a literal city. There are many candidates that are proposed for the identity of this city by Bible scholars. Some of them include Rome or Vatican City. Many early reformers saw it as Rome, as well as, somewhat ironically, the Catholic Church teaches that it is Rome as well, in their New American Bible Commentary on the Vatican website. Although it should be said that they are referring to ancient pagan Rome, where the reformers would say that it was the Rome of the Catholic Church's day. The actual city of Babylon in Iraq is suggested by some. They say that it would be rebuilt in the future in this scenario. And we will look in depth at this possibility as well as these other possibilities in our study. Another proposal is Mecca, or other Arab cities have been proposed. This view has been especially popular very recently. Also, the city of Jerusalem is proposed. This is the earliest view on Mystery Babylon, and it is also held by the widest variety of different Christian groups. And then people also propose New York, and really a long list of other less popular candidates. There are also some very popular viewpoints that take the Bible as speaking metaphorically or allegorically here. They say that it's not really a city, but symbolic of something else. 
Some of these views include that it is a world pagan religious system or a world financial system or both. There is no reason that there should be this much confusion. I have counted the characteristics given to Mystery Babylon, and in the three chapters that deal with her, over 90 characteristics are mentioned. That's an astonishing amount of detail given for Mystery Babylon, and in this study I will show that there is explicit biblical evidence for most of, if not all, of these 90 characteristics. There is no need to guess, because the Bible has made sure that we can know for certain simply by comparing Scripture with other Scripture. I'm sure that you will agree that the answer to this age-old question of the identity of Mystery Babylon is found within the pages of Scripture. Before I go any further, I'm going to tell you who I think Scripture teaches that Mystery Babylon is. When I first heard this theory proposed, I said, it couldn't be. But I hope you will see just as I did, if you give me just a few minutes, that there's no one else it can be. It is the eschatological city of Jerusalem. Notice I chose my words very carefully in how I described it. In other words, it is the future Jerusalem of the end times, where according to Daniel 11.45, the Antichrist sets up his end times world government and end times world religion headquarters. The city and its inhabitants will promote the Antichrist as the one true God, thereby committing the ultimate abomination, the ultimate harlotry, but even worse, they also promote him and entice the world to follow them in their worship of the man of sin. We know that the Antichrist will choose Jerusalem as the place to declare himself to be God in Second Thessalonians 2.4, Matthew 24.15, Daniel 11.31-32, and we know that the greatest religious killing of all time will happen in the city of Jerusalem, according to Matthew 24.15-21. So often we look at the woman and try to define her in terms of what we have already seen in history, as opposed to what scripture says we will see in the future. That is the primary reason why people missed this, I think, because, as we will see, it is not because of lack of explicit biblical support. For instance, Revelation 18.24 says, And in her, speaking of Mystery Babylon, was found the blood of prophets. Have you ever known any cities to kill the prophets in scripture or in history? Actually, we don't even have to speculate, as Jesus says it was impossible for a prophet to be killed anywhere except Jerusalem. In Luke 13, 31-34, it says, The same day there came certain of the Pharisees, saying unto him, Get thee out, and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. And he said unto them, Go ye, and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures to-day and to-morrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must walk to-day and to-morrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. So, the Pharisees are saying, get out of here or Herod's going to kill you. And he's basically saying, look, I have to stay in town because all the prophets are killed in Jerusalem. And then Luke quotes this famous line, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often I would have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. This is repeated by the Lord in other places as well. For instance, in another place, he tells them that their fathers killed the prophets, and they hypocritically built their tombs. He names Zechariah as an example, which he says was killed near the temple. He also says that they will be held accountable and judged for this blood on their hands. If the blood of the prophets is found in the mystery Babylonian city, it is strong evidence in favor of it being Jerusalem. Jerusalem is specifically called a harlot hundreds of times in scripture, and in the very same context, 
always spiritual harlotry, following false gods, and because of their killing prophets, etc. Just a small sampling of this is in Isaiah 1.21, where it says, How has the faithful city become a harlot? It was full of judgment, righteousness lodged in it, but now murders. Or in Ezekiel chapter 16, which is entirely about this subject. It starts out, Again the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. And he spends the whole chapter saying things like, But thou didst trust in thine own beauty, and playedest the harlot because of thy renown, and poredest out thy fornications, and every one that passed by, his it was. And of thy garments thou didst take, and decadest the high places with diverse colors, and playedest the harlot thereupon. The like things shall not come, neither shall it be so. Jerusalem is constantly warned in Scripture that if they do not turn from their harlotries, they will be judged. And as we go through Revelation 17 and 18, we will find that the exact judgments Mystery Babylon gets are the exact same ones promised to Jerusalem because of their spiritual harlotry. Here is one example from Ezekiel 16:40 through 43 They shall also bring up a company against thee, and they shall stone thee with stones, and thrust thee through with their swords, and they shall burn thine houses with fire, and execute judgments upon thee in the sight of many women. And I will cause thee to cease from playing the harlot, and thou also shalt give no hire any more. Therefore I also will recompense thy way upon thine head, saith the Lord God, and thou shalt not commit this lewdness above all thine abominations. Behold, every one that uses proverbs shall use this proverb against thee, saying, As is the mother, so is her daughter. This idea here that Jerusalem is a harlot that has children or inhabitants that are harlots too, is what is meant when Revelation says that the woman is the mother of harlots. The harlots are the inhabitants, and Jerusalem is the mother. I think that a lot of the confusion is that commentators want to stick the word all in there, as in the mother of all harlots, as if it was talking about the source of all bad things from the history of the world. But that's not what the text says Mystery Babylon is. It simply says that the city is the mother of harlots. Those harlots here are the inhabitants of the city. When Jesus reiterates this prophecy, he uses the same language. In Luke 23, 28-30 it says, But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming, in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren for the wombs that have never bare, and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. This view of a futuristic Jerusalem, of the Antichrist's reign, being Mystery Babylon, is not my view alone. I am standing firmly on the shoulders of giants. I heard this view first from a great Bible scholar named Charles Cooper, but I was pleasantly surprised to find that this view is the earliest view recorded of the Church Fathers that I know of. There was a writer named Hippolytus, and he produced the earliest known commentary on the book of Revelation. He was probably the most important theologian of the 200s. And this was an important time because the Revelation was written very late, so it took a long time for it to be circulated. And as a result, we don't find many commentaries on the book of Revelation until about Hippolytus' time. But the problem is, is that the way that people interpreted the Bible, the hermeneutic of the early church, was about to change. In the 300s, about the time that the Catholic Church began, people started interpreting the Bible more allegorically, as opposed to a more literal or face-value approach. 
As a result, there is a very short window of time where we can hear the views of a premillennial and futurist church father on the book of Revelation. And this is what Hippolytus had to say. By the unrighteous judge who fears not God, neither regards man, he means without doubt Antichrist, as he is a son of the devil and a vessel for Satan. For when he has the power, he will begin to exalt himself against God, neither in truth fearing God, nor regarding the Son of God, who is the judge of all. And in saying that there was a widow in the city, he refers to Jerusalem itself, which is a widow indeed. Forsaken of her perfect heavenly spouse God, she calls him her adversary, and not her Savior, for she does not understand that which was said by the prophet Jeremiah, quote, because they observe not the truth, a spirit of error shall speak then to this people and to Jerusalem. He says this in Treaties on Christ and the Antichrist. It is also worth noting that Hippolytus was a student of Irenaeus, who was a student of Polycarp, who was a student of John the Apostle, the guy who wrote the book of Revelation. So I hope during this verse-by-verse study you will be challenged as much as I was in my interpretation of Mystery Babylon. I used to think that the woman was Rome or the Vatican, and when we get to the verses about the seven mountains, you will see why I think that this interpretation held by so many is grammatically and contextually impossible. I also used to think that it was referencing an allegorical kind of amalgamation of all the world's occult religions or financial evil. And you'll see that that view requires a deliberate departure from the plain and simple meaning of the text. It also goes against the angel's own interpretation of this woman. It also tries to force that word all into phrases like mother of abominations and mother of harlots. I've actually seen commentaries do this. They insert the word all into the text, saying instead mother of all harlots or mother of all abominations. It's just not there. This imaginary all makes people think that they have to make Mystery Babylon account for all the world's evil, past, present, and future. So they go looking in the past or in the present for the most evil thing that they can think of. And that's pretty much how they come up with their interpretation of Mystery Babylon. Whatever the most evil thing is in their paradigm is what she will be to them. It is not a coincidence, therefore, that all the books about Mystery Babylon being Islam showed up after 9-11. But that is no way to interpret the Bible. The strength of verse-by-verse study is its thoroughness. And this will take several weeks to go through the study, but I ask you to stay with me. It will give an opportunity to teach some of the most complicated aspects of the Antichrist, as well as the city that he chooses to set up shop in. After this study, I think that you will understand the book of Revelation better than you ever have. Revelation 17, verse 1 says, And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. And this first line connects us back to the previous chapter, chapter 16, where the seven bowls were being poured out. The seventh bowl is the judgment of Mystery Babylon, the very thing in which we will be studying. So let's go back and read that passage in Revelation chapter 16 first. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. 
and there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. As so often is the case in the book of Revelation, it will now, back in our chapter, chapter 17, sort of zoom in and take a closer look at this great city that has just been judged. This is the pattern seen very often in the book of Revelation and scripture in general. For instance, in Revelation 13, it breaks from the chronological narrative to zoom in on the character of the Antichrist and false prophet. The same thing happens in chapter 7, where the chronology of the seals breaks to tell us more about the 144,000 and the great multitude, or in chapter 11, when it zooms in to tell you the details of the two witnesses. Here is no different. After telling us of the destruction of the great city, it will now zoom in to give us more details about its character. Those details will last two chapters and will be the focus of our study. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me. This is one of the seven angels in charge of the seven vials or seven bowls, depending on which translation you're reading. We are not told which angel specifically it is. But, in any case, it takes John aside and will begin to show him more details about the judgment of the great whore. It says here that she sitteth on many waters. This is not left for us to guess its meaning, as the angel will later tell us what this phrase means. In Revelation 17.15 it says, And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, are peoples, multitudes, and nations, and tongues. When we combine this verse with verse 18, which says, And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth, we see that this is a city that might be the center of a world empire of some kind. It will be the chief city in that empire or system. It is the seat of authority of the world government and religious system. We will also see later on that the term great city is specifically identified as Jerusalem by John. This would be consistent with Daniel 11.45, where speaking of the Antichrist it says, And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Next verse, Revelation 17.2 says, With whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. RevelationCommentary.org says of this first phrase, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, that it is fulfilling John's commission to prophesy against kings given in Revelation 10, verse 11. So what is this fornication? It's actually a really important point to figure out what the nature of this fornication being committed is. Revelation 19.2 says that the great harlot corrupts the earth with her fornication. That word corrupt there in the Greek means to cause the moral ruin of somebody. The terms like harlot, whore, fornication are used very frequently in the Old Testament. And in only a minority of the cases is it referring to actual sexual harlotry or fornication. In a vast majority of the cases, it is used to describe the worshipping of false gods, especially in reference to Israel. Even in the famous story of Hosea the prophet, where Hosea was told to marry an actual prostitute, this was intended to be a symbol of God's relationship with Israel, who commits spiritual prostitution by worshipping other gods. Hosea 3 verse 1 explains, Then the Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery. 
just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. Spiritual harlotry is one of the most attested to symbols in scripture. When God is referring to harlotry or fornication, and it's obviously not one of the literal references, he makes it clear that it is spiritual harlotry achieved by the worshiping of false gods. One example that illustrates this well is in Ezekiel 16, 35 and 36, where it says, Wherefore, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God, because thy filthiness was poured out and thy nakedness discovered through thy whoredoms, with thy lovers and with all the idols of thy abominations, and by the blood of thy children which thou didst give unto them. Here it is speaking of the practice of Israel sacrificing their children to the god Moloch, as well as the worship of idols of false gods. Also in Jeremiah 3, verse 6, we find a good example. It says, The Lord said also unto me in the days of Josiah the king, Hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain, and under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. Here again we see harlotry made synonymous with the worship of false gods. The high places term is referring to the altars that would be made to false gods, and the, quote, under the green tree was also a common place of false worship. This combination of terms is actually referring back to Deuteronomy 12, verse 2, where it says, Ye shall utterly destroy all the places wherein the nations which ye shall possess served their gods upon the high mountains and upon the hills and under every green tree. So if this is the correct view of this fornication, and I think that we will see as we progress that it is, then the kings of the earth are both committing fornication with her and drunk off of her fornications. They are drawn in by her own infatuation and worship of the beast. This, I believe, is best understood as the city of Jerusalem promoting the Antichrist, not just as their Messiah, but as God himself. They will be instrumental in the promotion of the worship of the Antichrist to the world. We see that the world, during the reign of Antichrist, will do religious service to him, bringing gifts from every nation to worship him with. The world will be enticed to fully worshiping the Antichrist by the great city and its inhabitants. So you can see what it means here. She herself is committing this fornication, and the world is made drunk by it, and they themselves also commit the same fornication. The next verse, Revelation 17, verse 3, says, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. So this first part, John is, quote, carried away by the spirit. So he's still being divinely directed in this vision. The wilderness here does not have the definite article the, T-H-E, in the Greek. It's often better rendered a wilderness. So here we are introduced to another crucial character in this unholy drama, and it is the scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. This is the exact same beast that we saw in Revelation 13, which is almost universally agreed to be a description of the Antichrist. So let's jump back to Revelation 13, verse 1, and it says this, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. It is important to understand this basic symbolism. Here the great city is riding the Antichrist, this does not mean that she is in any way in control of the Antichrist, though. 
We know this because we see that later on in Revelation 17 verse 16 that the Antichrist actually turns on her and destroys her and in fact hates her. She, however, believes that she has found a true husband and her king in the beast. Revelation 18 verse 7b says, For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen, and am no widow, and shall see no sorrow. But sadly, she is mistaken, and it says that she will be utterly destroyed by the one she calls her king and her husband. This full of names of blasphemy is an important description of the Antichrist, and is used in various places in Scripture, notably in Daniel eleven thirty six and 37, where it says, And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. For that that is determined shall be done, neither shall he regard the god of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any god, for he shall magnify himself above all. And in Second Thessalonians 2.4, it says, Who opposes and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And we're going to speak more in depth of these seven heads and ten horns when we discuss verses 9 and 10 but I believe that they are speaking of the different occasions in history in which the spirit of Antichrist has manifested itself in the form of kings. John, as we will see, says of these heads, they are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain only a little while. One of the heads, I believe the seventh one, the one that John says was yet to come, will be the Antichrist, who will receive a mortal wound and yet live. Back in Revelation 13, when John is talking about this seven-headed beast, he says the following, And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. The beast that she rides is the spirit of Antichrist, that, in the time of writing of this book, had already manifested itself in the form of kings six times in history, one of them, the last head, being yet future. We are also told in Revelation 13 that one of these heads, I believe the one yet to come, for reasons we will discuss later, will be mortally wounded and will seem to come back to life. This is the beast that she worships instead of the true God. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to try to keep these relatively short. If you want to see the movie, hear the MP3, read the text, you can do so at the website versebyversebibleteaching.com. And we will pick up right where we left off in verse 4 next week as we continue this multi-week study of Mystery Babylon. Thanks for listening to Nowhere to Run. You can download all of the archives to this show and others I have done for free at nowheretorunradio.com. Your prayers and donations are needed and appreciated. You can partner with me to reach many more people with discipleship, apologetics, and the gospel. Go to Nowhere to Run Radio to help support this ministry. Thanks for your time.